Hello again, this is Session 3 of World Sepsis Congress 2021, an intriguing panel discussion featuring Marcus Friedrich, Gareth Presch, and Jerome Salomon, moderated by Ron Daniels, our Vice President of Communications. Without further ado, over to Ron to get us started. So welcome to session three of the World Sepsis Congress 2021. This is obviously a different World Sepsis Congress to those that we've run before because we are in the midst globally of a pandemic. Some countries believe or have responded well. Some countries perhaps believe they have or indeed have responded less well. So really this session is around what we can do as a global society. Are there any shining examples of countries, governments, individuals that have responded brilliantly to this campaign, are there any lessons we can learn from errors we've made along the way? So this session's entitled Lessons Learned for Ending This and for Preventing the Next Pandemic. My name's Ron. I'm an intensive care consultant in the West Midlands in Birmingham in the, in the United Kingdom. I'm one of the vice presidents of the Global Sepsis Alliance. I've been involved in championing better sepsis outcomes really since, I believe, 2005. I'm here to moderate this session, and I think just this just reinforces that we are in the midst of a pandemic. For those of you who've had a program in your hands on your laptops over the last several weeks, there have been some changes to this program. So um, it, it's important to reinforce to you that Dr. Ruoco and uh, Professor Vila, respectively, uh, from Italy and Germany, have had to very sadly withdraw from this session this afternoon, my time, um, because they are heavily involved in their country's response to the COVID pandemic. And um, Maria van Kerkova from the WHO, she's unfortunately also had to withdraw and she has genuinely a, a family emergency that she can't get over. But the great news is that uh, Dr. Friedrich, that Marcus Friedrich uh, from, from New York uh, in North America, he's agreed to, to join us to share his perspective and had his, have, uh, add his reflections. But I'd like to start by inviting um, a friend and colleague, Gareth Presh, to offer his initial reflections on the lessons we can learn from this pandemic, how we can help to end it, working together as a society, and what we can do next. To introduce Gareth briefly, Gareth is really a global healthcare thought leader. So he's the founder and chief executive officer of the World Health Innovation Summit, the expert lead on the Sustainable Development Goals 3 and 4 for the UNGSAI Foundation, founder of the Global Social Prescribing Alliance and a member of Pope Francis's Vatican COVID-19 Commission Group, looking to the future. So Gareth, if you please, and, and I apologize that you're taking the place really of, of three esteemed colleagues who suddenly can't make it, but what initial reflections and thoughts ahead are you able to offer around this pandemic? Thanks, Ron. Uh, firstly, my thanks uh, for the invitation to speak to everyone today. And I think this really is a, an opportunity. Um, when we look at the future, how do we face the challenges um, that we will face in the future to avoid future pandemics? And I thought I would start by just a little bit of a reflection. And um, if we could just, you know, on my slide, you probably see in front of you there, slide one. Um, you can see that we have been in, the, we have actually been forewarned. And we've had opportunities in the past to kind of plan 
And I hope in the future we can get it right. So, you know, I'm looking at how critical are public-private partnerships in planning for pandemic preparedness. You know, in 2019, um, we held, there was an event, Event 201. There was a number of recommendations made around public-private cooperation. And when you look at this in terms of the points and the recommendations that were made, it was a significant opportunity by governments and civil society and the wider, shall we say, public-private partnership opportunity to come together and bring these recommendations to the fore to ensure we didn't have, shall we say, such an impact across the globe that we're currently facing through COVID-19. And I just want to start on some of these points. I mean, my, my initial thought was just to highlight some of these, and I will. But just if you look at point one, you know, governments, international organizations and business should plan now for how essential corporate capabilities will be utilized during a large scale pandemic. Point two, industry, national governments and international organizations should work together to enhance international health stockpiles of medical countermeasures um, to enable rapid and equitable distribution during a pandemic. I mean, we're seeing that with the vaccines at the moment. You know, countries, international organizations and global transportation companies should work together. And there's there's more points than I don't want to go through each in the one each one of them. But what I'm saying here is that we have had that opportunity to be prepared. And that's one of the biggest lessons that we face at this present time. I think when we look to the future and the opportunities in terms of next steps, um, and my next slide is really around what comes next and how do we actually leverage this support? And we look at the lessons learned. Well, you know, COVID has displaced 400 million jobs. Um, but at the same time, great number, uh, you know, there's been a great amass of wealth generated, um, you know, billions of pounds literally tech companies have made. And while I'm looking at it from the sustainable development goals perspective and the SDGs and working with the UNGSII Foundation, we've been also looking at how do you leverage that, what we would call intangibles into investments for sustainable development goal three, which is good health and well-being. And healthcare, and you know what I what I've seen the previous sessions, and um, it's been great to see that we're actually at the forefront of this, building trust within communities, tackling misinformation. Ron, you've done a great job in the UK in terms of that misinformation and tackling it head on. Um, but can we leverage this, you know, goodwill within communities, the health sector leading on building trust within communities? Can we also look at how do we develop good health and well-being? I mean, huge challenges are coming down the line in terms of staffing, recruitment, retention. One of the areas that we've kind of missed is, you know, we have an 18 million staff shortfall by 2030. Now, many people will say that's a huge challenge. That's actually an opportunity. When we look at AMR, when we look at disease management, global burden of disease, you know, we should also look at how do we promote good health and well-being? How do we support communities to enable and to react um, effectively and efficiently to support our local health services? And this also looks at value creation um, in terms of leveraging the current $12 trillion market space, which is involved in health and well-being around the world. How do we create a circular economy? And that's really what I'm looking at is creating that value opportunity for health and well-being across multi-sectors, patients, clinicians, managers voluntary sector, education and the business community working together. 
Um, I mentioned the SCR 500 there, which is the report that we will present the accumulative results, which is a fund we've been in, working on with Alfred Berkeley, former president of NASDAQ, um, to the G20 next month in Berlin with Dennis Snower's team, Global Solutions um, in Berlin. And we'll be able to demonstrate that there is a significant opportunity to invest in sustainable development goals and create new and meaningful jobs while addressing these concerns. So that's what we're looking at and that's what we intend to leverage. This is important because we have to anticipate the future. And we know our populations are rising. We know we have to uh, support 10 billion people on the planet. We also know that you know climate change is, is, is upon us. If we think we have challenges now with COVID-19, how are we going to address these you know, offsetting carbon footprints? There are huge opportunities. We haven't really discussed the, the, the influence of the fake groups. How can they get involved? How can they support? And I think this pandemic has really shown that we have to have a holistic approach around good health and well-being and make healthcare sustainable. And um, I always, you know, I come from a managerial background, patient safety as well. We always talk about the costs. But again, I want to try and say to people, let's look at the value that's being created by putting in preventative measures. We can put in these disease surveillance and so on and so forth. And my final slide really looks at, you know, us working together collaboratively, um, which is, you know, about going on that journey towards me and you working together and us in the community working together so that we solve these problems. The great thing about what we're doing at the moment, Ron, and even the, you know, today's discussion is the fact that we're bringing solutions to the table. And there are solutions, there are wisdom, there are knowledge there. And it's really about us as a collective unit taking that leadership step to make these things happen. We are already, we are aware that the finance is there. I mean, from the World Urban Forum last year, um, you know, we were told that the money is there to support SDGs. But the problem we seem to face is being able to match the players. It, we have to get these people to uh, communicate together. And that's very important when we look to the future of health and well-being. So, I mean, from a global context, really, it's local as well, because we have to get that information and that build that trust. So I hope, Ron, that gives you a bit of a context in terms of what we can do, opens up the opportunities to create new and meaningful jobs. Just an example in the UK with the Global Social Prescribing Alliance, we're working very closely with the National Academy of Social Prescribing. They're going to um, invest in link workers, increase their care workers from 4,000 in primary care up to 20 odd thousand. So there's huge opportunities. But in terms of creating value with what we've done in World Health Innovation Summit is a pound invested 36 back. And that creates an opportunity cost around the world. So I hope that gives you an insight into the opportunities. And I'm looking forward to this discussion on how we can le learn from each other. Thank you so much, Gareth. That's, you know, fantastic food for thought and a, and a great opening to, to this session. And just as a heads up to my colleagues, I, I'm going to call on Marcus Friedrich next uh, with permission. But Gareth, I've just got three questions for you. And I think we can open this up into a broader debate as we've once we've heard from the other participants. So, I mean, the first question is, we're not very good at this stuff, are we? We're, you know, who should be leading this? Should it be the UN? Should it be the WHO? Should it be um, 
national governments? Should it be uh, corporations? Should it indeed be faith organizations? Or should it be all of these? Because when we look at organizations like the UN, like the WHO, like national governments, this, this embracing in healthcare of this partnership between, um, uh, between private sector and the public sector is not very well cemented. And it's a, it's a brave new world to enter into this space where it becomes a societal responsibility, not only in terms of the humanitarian effort, but also the financial efforts around this. How do we overcome this? Um, I think this is a brilliant point. And this is down to leadership, Ron. Um, it's all about who has the appetite, who's willing to take the, make those bold changes. Healthcare is risk averse. You know, we, we know that. It takes so much evidence to build a case. But look, you know, let's call a spade a spade. We know what works. We have enough evidence in the bank. We know how to prevent disease. Listen, you know, my mother used to tell me, eat an apple a day, you know, keep the doctor away. Just simple things like that. Exercise. Let's start promoting health. Let's start look at the value that can be created. Let's keep people out of hospitals because the reality is we can't service the people in hospitals. And we are going to face a huge problem in the next few months around staffing, recruitment, retention. And we have to be open and honest and transparent. That affects business community around the world. They need to chip in. The private sector need to understand that this will impact them commercially. It's across the board. We have to take the initiative. We have to support those that are willing to take that lead. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I work with some amazing pioneers, you know, Roland Schatz, Michael Muller, Kofi Annan. They set up the index to support. They wanted to show that you could get a financial return based on intangibles into the SDGs. That's part of the reason why the Millennium Development Goals failed. But we need to get on board and we need to change the mindset also. We can't have a situation where we are constantly saying, for WHO, for example, cap in hand, going to try and get finance. When finance is available at the drop of a hat to set up a European Super League, for example. You know, so, I mean, we have to call a spade a spade here. We need to look after our populations. And I also think one of the areas that will show significant growth and opportunity is watch the African Union and watch their members. And because the greatest need is coming from Africa, South America and Asia. And they do have the commodities and the minerals and the metals and the willingness to look for partners. OK, and there will be a big change in how they approach things. So there's a good opportunity there, Ron. Yeah, and a fantastic point, Gareth. And of course, you know, if we look at the 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 rate of progress uh, globally, some of those countries that you mentioned in your closing statement are are, are, the, are the leaders. Now, um, there's a question arising which is very related from one of our guests, and then I have two more short points before we come over to uh, to Marcus Friedrich. But how could how can private scientific companies contribute to to this? What's the role of, I guess? big pharma, the diagnostics companies, the medical equipment companies, and so forth? Well, well, they're all involved. I mean, we only just have to look at climate change, okay? Look at the situation that we face in terms of fish, air pollution. You know, this affects everyone. Where does um, contraceptive pill? I was, you know, where that's flushed down the toilet. I mean, it ends up in our food chain. I mean, these are, like, everyone has to play their part, including big pharma. 
the companies of the future, and remember, we also have to look at where are we going to invest our money in the future, okay? In the past, the large tech companies we have been investing in, okay, remember, they are, we are investing in them. The money comes from civil society by us supporting them, okay, by using those platforms. We need to support ethical and sustainable platforms of the future. That's where we put our money. Being open and transparent is the future. And if we can embrace that and work with those companies who are willing to embrace that and also have the cash to do that. Remember, I just showed you the point there on the Oxfam report. Only 0.5% of the billions of pounds that have been generated during the pandemic have been reinvested back into communities. That's absurd. The private sector need to mobilize that cash and they need to reinvest it back into health and well-being. And they need to, then they will benefit from that as well. I mean, I can sit with any one of those companies and show them the business model that can actually generate more cash flow. This is an opportunity in terms of uh, every single corporation around the world, the top 500 S&Ps. But Ron, in the next 10 years, we'll have new companies come into that space. They, that, that dynamic can change very quickly, which is what we will see in the future. Fantastic. Great answer. And just an observation from one of our guests. So thanks for the transparency. That's so, so true and real. The other questions that are arising, I'm going to save until after we've heard from our other speakers, but rest assured, I am retaining them. Um, so just two points from me, Gareth, if I may, just picking up on a couple of things you said. This, this, this whole public engagement and public interest in health that has led to really so much disinformation on social media. And I think, you know, perhaps some governments with reflection might concede in time that they have uh, led messaging that's been largely driven by fear in order to control the public. That's probably propagated a lot of this disinformation on social media. So my first question is around that. How do we manage that as we move forward? Because that those people on social media are not going to disengage from health policy and health matters over the coming years and before the next critical event. But how do we manage them and make them more formative and, and, and more engaged in a positive way? My second point about what you said was the effect on healthcare staff. I, I've seen colleagues on long-term sick leave, through anxiety, through stress, through physical sequelae of COVID-19, I've seen colleagues leave for sabbaticals, leave for a different career path. This is not restricted to my hospital. This is going to be the case in every healthcare system around the world because health professionals are now mentally and emotionally and physically exhausted. How do we manage that situation? So, sorry, two questions, Gareth, in one. Yeah, the first one is around misinformation and, and platforms have a responsibility. I mean, I think, you know, you have to understand the great wield of power that these platforms yield, you know, in terms of their reach. Um, but we also have to look at um, opportunities within the fake groups. And um, we have to invite the fates into the, the conversation. We have to welcome these challenges as well. And we have to state the facts. Let's just be totally honest here and state the facts, okay? As we've got to be transparent in what we're doing. And why not publish the data? You know, people have fears. I've worked in this industry for 20 years. I've been fortunate to meet people like yourself, Ron, who work with honesty and integrity. Yes, we do make mistakes. But the reality is we are trying to help people. That's why I joined the health service. It's given me a fantastic career. And that's what I want to do. I want to help others. 
In the second point, in terms of burnout and in terms of what we're looking at in well-being, again, this comes back to cultural issues within the health service. Again, it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity to look at the value of staff. Remember, I don't know how many times, you know, the, the health system is bled dry from its intangibles, from its intellectual capital. It's property that is there, that has been sucked dry to commercialize around the world. We need to look at that. We need to look at that uh, from the point of view of how do we tap into that resource? The staff are so willing to help people. Like you say, they burn themselves out. We have a staff, most people who join the health service are empathetic. They are in the top 2% in the world academically. And so they join because they want to help and do good work. We have a right and a responsibility to look after that and also share that knowledge and wisdom. That's the huge opportunity that we have in the future. One final point to make as well around uh, financing and funding that I want to make is just remember, Jeremy Hunt mentioned earlier, the NHS has 1.4 million staff. OK, you know, the financing and the, of the NHS is is through pension funds. And we, we also have to look at how do we finance healthcare going forward in the future, the return on investment, the value created. These are areas that we need to explore because they have huge opportunity. Fantastic answers, Gareth. And I, I'm just going to, if I may, take the liberty of summarising your session with, you know, a couple of keywords, really, honesty, integrity, and really the challenge you've presented to governments, to health professionals, to global organisations to begin to think different, differently and to begin to think commercially in the interests of mankind around this. And, and I suppose the the closing remark, if uh, if I may, is can we afford not to do this? I would suggest that we can't. I'm not ignoring the questions around low middle income countries. I'm not ignoring the huge numbers of people we've got representing, particularly Latin America among our audience. We're going to come back to that and, and come back to questions such as, you know, does this need a global or a national response when we're trying to help countries with constrained resources? I'm going to turn now to Dr. Marcus Friedrich. Now, now, um, Marcus will need little introduction, if any introduction, to many. He's the Chief Medical Officer for Patient Safety across the New York State Department of Health. So, essentially, the CEO for, for New York State, CMO for New York State. He's been leading the COVID nineteen response. So, so. Marcus, if I may ask you to, you very kindly stepped in really at the last minute um, to replace, well, three sessions. But but I think your, your focus and your expertise will probably be directly related to um, uh, Professor Vila's session, Dr. Rolko's session, uh, respectively coordinating surge responses nationally and leading at the front line of an emerging pandemic. So could I impose on you to to please share your thoughts having not been prepared for this session until today Marcus. Yeah, thank you Ron and again thank you for having me. Um you you asked earlier if there is a shining example and I just want to take that up front that um I I don't see our response uh, as a shining example. I think we were in New York uh, struggling like everybody else around the world. Um, just to give you like a fact that um, like at the height of we, we were a hotspot back in March and April here in New York and New York City and uh, COVID like always 
almost like I like to use soccer analogies, like doing a dribbling. It, it started in Washington State, and then um, we concentrated as a nation here in the U.S. mostly on China, but at the same time, there was widespread, wide community spread in New York. And at the height of the search here in New York, we had uh, about 20,000 of our um, 50,000 hospital beds um, full with COVID. And, you know, that is a statewide number. Uh, most hospitals, as you probably seen and heard in New York City, um, were out of beds. Um, they did a tremendous job increasing the capacity to accommodate all those patients. We had about 5,500 uh, patients in the ICU at, in every single day, and that exceeded our pre-COVID ICU capacity by uh, about threefold. And again, um, you know, just to the remarkable work of the health systems around this, and also, you know, the intubation. And I, I like many others in this pandemic, um, got pulled into. Um, more from the from the logistic and procurement side, which was very interesting um, because I, I I'm an internist, a practicing internist, and doing HIV care. But I, you know, have very little to say when it comes to ventilators. But I was tasked with helping the state to purchase ventilators and medical equipment on a large scale. So it was everything had to be supercharged. We all found ourselves in different roles, as probably all of you um, out there as well. And you ask about kind of like key lessons. One of the lessons that I want to highlight is um, the data environment. As you know, Ron, um, we, we are collecting data on sepsis um, since, uh, you know, early 2014, and we were very proud of our clinical abstraction, but it didn't help us one bit during COVID. Um, the data was old. There was, it's usually a time lag of six months in it, and you need to make or needed to make decisions on real-time data. So we had to build data systems from scratch to give uh, to get adequate information from the hospitals to get adequate information from about bed capacity about ventilator use and that was really one of the big lessons that our data where we, our data infrastructure where we were so immensely proud that this really needed a big overhaul and you know that is also probably one of the lessons that we take home that we really need to need to look at data because everything is driven by data every decision that we need to make is driven by data the other piece um, and lesson that showed uh, or was very clear the issue about health equity and uh, equality and it's been shown and many studies have shown that that especially the black and hispanic population not only in new york but uh, i think um, nationwide was uh, disproportionately affected by this pandemic. And I think that um, this also led us to think more about health equities in, in, in general and um, also thinking about how, how can we address this more than before. And there are various initiatives um, in, on, a, on its way um, from, from the highest level to, to take a new look at health equities because I think that um, this is really something that we want to combat and want to have as one of the strategic goals in the next five to 10 years to really understand why this is happening and also how to combat and hope, hopefully eliminate this um, going forward. And then, of course, the other lesson is the preparedness that um, 
everybody was kind of like flat-footed from the PPE or was found flat-footed from the PPE that was lacking in many of our facilities that we had to scramble. And I found myself competing with you know, the Chinese with the Europeans on the world market to get these supplies. And it is really, it was really bothersome that, um, that uh, you know, because of these concerns in the past, uh, uh, the global supply chain completely broke down and we were scrambling to give our frontline workers adequate um, uh, PPE, which we, at the end, we, we resolve, but it was a challenge, um, especially in the beginning when uh, COVID virtually exploded here on the shores in the United States. So those are kind of like uh, just my opening comments. Um, I, 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 I personally, um, I, I, I must say that I'm very proud for the work that we've done here at the department. Nobody did it right. And we were you know, we but we 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 showed flexibility and we um, you know finally bent the curve down and uh, you know we had uh, after the first surge a very good summer um, during uh, the holiday surge. Um, thank God, with all our our measures in uh, social distancing and so forth, um, we were not hit as hard as many other areas in the United States. So that that was a positive, and we will see now how how this pans out um, going forward. Thank you so much, Marcus. Uh, these are fan fantastic insights, and I'd really encourage people to ask questions related to your session. You know, we've, we've heard from, from Gareth, who's got a global perspective. We're going to hear from Jérôme shortly uh, around the, the perspective uh, across a country in France. But it's rare that we can have direct interaction with leaders who've been responsible for delivering these responses at a regional or national level. And, you know, fantastic honesty there from you, Marcus. You know, the, the mistakes that all countries have made, um, particularly on the procurement side of things. I'm going to ask you a little bit about the equity and a, a little bit about the data as well before we move on to uh, Professor Solomon. But you, you acknowledge that we've all learned lessons around ventilators. We've all learned lessons around PPE. And my reflections from the United Kingdom were that, ventilators were the immediate priority of the government. We were told by colleagues in China, by colleagues in the Lombardy re region of Italy, we were going to need a lot of ventilators. I feel that this is something that's, that's really quite tangible and dare I say, almost a bit sexy for governments. We, our government asked um, for a collaboration between the McLaren Formula One racing team and Mercedes-Benz to produce some ventilators. That's kind of sexy. That, that's kind of... A, a press statement, it's going to engage people. PPE, well, it's a bit less sexy, isn't it? It's around protecting healthcare workers. We know that they're terrified. We want to protect them. But we also want to know as a member of the public that there's going to be the equipment there to treat us. How do we learn lessons from this and prioritize procurement according to genuine need in the future without first prioritizing those, those more sexy items? We, we had our share here. I think, um, you know, Elon Musk and Tesla and also, you know, General, uh, General Motors started building ventilators. And at the end, you know, who really came through are the existing manufacturers of ventilators who ramped up their production facility. I think that um, the 
as you said, Ron, I, I, like it, it was interesting to see kind of like that everybody suddenly had an idea to solve that ventilator question. And, um, you know, I, I was on the receiving end and probably 99.999% of these ideas were um, uh, total garbage that uh, were not usable at all. Uh, while at the same time, um, you know, patients uh, needed to be ventilated in the, in the hospitals. So I think it, it, it requires also a, a way of looking at this procurement process. And as you know, as a, a public health agency that the Department of Health here in New York is, you know, we were usually not in the position that we had to procure large amounts, but it's it, it, like the pandemic showed us that we need to be in, in the driver's seat to make um, sound clinical decisions on what needs to be procured. And I think that was a misconception in the beginning that, that, that the procurement needs to be concentrated, and I don't know how it is in Great Britain or around the world, uh, by other agencies who have virtually no clinical um, understanding of what is needed. And so I, I think, again, as a lesson learned, um, we, we learned that we need to be involved in these processes that are usually, you know, in a completely different corner of the state, the decisions are made, that we need to be involved on the clinical side. Because um, I, I'm honestly said that even though we had clinical oversight, we still bought ventilators that might have not been bought in, 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 during normal times. And so um, as a strategy going forward, I think we need to empower the public health agencies and um, the, you mentioned earlier, the institutions that we thankfully have in place, but um, due to reduced funding in the last couple of years, um, really didn't live up maybe to, to um, their standards, that we need to involve these institutions, especially these public health agencies, in this process of procurement and also emergency preparedness, which is also like a very separate issue around um, planning for future pandemics. And I think that um, there is a new openness, what I sense here in the state, but also nationally, to talk about these things and making sure that we are prepared for the next pandemic. Uh, um, you know, hopefully it's far away and not in my lifetime. But uh, again, I, uh, you know, just want to put that out. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a great and again, very honest response, um, Marcus. I, I, someone's just commented that we should process map the patient journey and understand what procurement needs we will have through that process mapping exercise. And, and sometimes I would suggest, and I, I'd value your thoughts on this, that existing agencies that deal with public health, existing agencies that deal with infection surveillance probably aren't the right agencies to lead in those very granular, very frontline process mapping type exercises. I'd value your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that is a great suggestion and something that, uh, you know, we, 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 something that where we are not very good at and we need to be probably trained at um, this process mapping. Um, you can call it social engineering or, or uh, you know, like what Gareth was saying about, um, you know, his work as an innovator um, in a way. And I think that th these are different roles that we have to learn um, in, 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 in the future to make sure that we adequately um, plan and also adequately uh, 
be able to make these decisions going forward. Yeah, uh, agreed. You, you talked about equity, Marcus, and th this is hugely important. I mean, certainly in many multicultural developed countries, we, we saw this issue that a lot of frontline workers and one of our guests asked a question around protect or, or made a statement that we should first protect the frontline workers are from the uh, you know BME community. They're from vulnerable groups. So in the UK, we had huge numbers of cases very early on in the first wave of the pandemic among um, uh, people working in busy factories, people working in public transport. It wasn't just healthcare workers. These organizations, these roles, of course, are key to keeping any country moving. These, these very frontline, public focus, very um, often poor working conditions roles. How can we ensure that we prioritize the protection not only of vulnerable groups in terms of their ethnic and socioeconomic demographic but also vulnerable groups in terms of the prioritizing their contribution to society and understanding that a lot of these frontline roles are every bit as important as people who are successful in the financial services industry um, what we we put a lot of emphasis on uh, testing and bringing the testing into these communities direct. Um, uh, and I think that that is something that um, we we uh, made the decision very early on that especially with COVID, with a pandemic um, that is highly infectious, that you need to have the adequate testing because, um, people are working, they might not be able to go to a testing center that is only working um, or opening eight hours or 12 hours. So we put a lot of emphasis when we build uh, testing centers, state testing centers, that they would run some of them at least for 24 hours, that people who are working night shifts have the ability uh, or, or day shifts have the ability to come in. Um, the other piece that we are now seeing is with the vaccine, and it's kind of the same approach. You want to go into these communities and not make sure, like do it the other way around, where you just say, no, everybody has to come to a central test uh, or vaccination site, but go out in the communities, align with community leaders in, in those communities. And I think there's a lot of effort that we made and uh, um, the the um, governor is making to really go and like we have for example vaccination sites in black churches around the state we have vaccination sites really where these people live we have vans that are going around to um, to help vaccinate and so um, I, I think this is these are uh, approaches to at least address the problem are these the final solutions going forward probably not and I think that is where I'm getting at when we say that this is like a high priority for us to research this more than in the past and also address this issue and improve the quality for this vulnerable population. Fantastic. Thank you. And people are quite reasonably commenting, well, who could imagine a pandemic of such magnitude? Is it really over? You know, we can learn lessons, but are we ever going to be really prepared? Um, people are really interested in the mental health of healthcare workers, but there is a session later on this, uh, session six, the voice of healthcare workers. So I think we're going to park that. Um, we do need to move on. I have just one more question specifically 
um, with relation to your experience, Marcus. And then I think Gareth would like to make a point, which I think is going to be really interesting. And then we must move on and, and listen to uh, from uh, to Jérôme's uh, experience, and uh, then we can open the discussion up. So the the, the question um, specifically to your experience, Marcus, is what lessons drawn from COVID-19 may impact the way we should deal with sepsis? Yeah, uh, this is great. And this is a question that I asked myself after I had some time to breathe after the first surge. And I think that the, the approach how we are thinking about handling it, first of all, I mentioned data that we will, um, we will stop more the clinical abstraction and move to a full electronic abstraction that gives us the scale and also uh, reduces the burden on the hospitals. And we are going at, a, at our efforts now here and uh, switching over our sepsis data collection to a full electronic platform. And I'm excited um, to see how, how, how this will pan out. The first data we are uh, expecting in uh, June and July from the hospitals, and we will see this is um, really exciting. And I think um, for all of us, because this is a you know, sepsis world congress, um, sepsis and COVID are somewhat related, at least in my book. Um, you know, there are the straight sepsis cases, there are the straight COVID cases, but as you know and others know that there is enough research on, there is this overlap between um, you know, uh, viral sepsis, but also COVID cases who have uh, some bacterial um, uh, underlying in, in that. And I want to be able in the future to capture that. And therefore, I, I'm combining our efforts that we do on the, on the sepsis side with the efforts that we want to do on the COVID side, because this is so important. And um, as sepsis has shown us, and the, with the high mortality, um, although the COVID mortality is probably less in the hospitals, but you, it is an emergent uh, uh, infectious disease, if you will. And therefore, just saying that we are just looking at sepsis and not taking the uh, experience that we had in COVID into account, I, I think would be a mistake. It would be too easy to get away with. And therefore, um, I'm and my team here at the Department of Health are putting everything uh, into this more like digital, more real-time data collection in the future, uh, also to get some insight about treatment and uh, and making sure that we address and have the data to make decisions and improve our quality going forward. Yeah, there's there's lots of questions about the data, Marcus, but I think that might be getting a little bit too detailed for such a, a high-level discussion as we're in at the moment. But if we have time, we'll come back to the questions on, on the data. I mean, my personal view on this is this is a huge opportunity for anyone wanting to championing uh, to champion improved outcomes from sepsis from infectious disease the public have never been so engaged in discussions around infectious illness as they are at the moment uh, so i think it's a huge opportunity gareth you, you had a point you wanted to make and, and then we we should move on to uh, to our other colleague yeah just two quick points i think marcus you, you touched on and ron just in terms of data collection what an opportunity um, to look at um, gamification for early diagnosis in terms of cognitive response. I do know that there's, uh, NHS England are looking at certain digital tools at the moment. Happy to share the links later. I think it's called the key. And the second point that Marcus talked about procurement and in terms of high value net procurement, um, uh, I was part of the National Haemophilia Council in Ireland, which looked at hepatitis C and contaminated blood products. 
we were buying factor concentrate from pharmaceutical companies, but the patient groups were very much in part of that group. And then they brought huge value. So uh, that is a huge opportunity, Marcus, um, in terms of public procurement uh, to engage with the patients, to have them with us because they have they bring a valuable insight into driving costs down. Thank you so much, uh, Gareth. Uh, again, you know, very uh, fascinating observation. So we're, we're going to move on to um, Professor Jérôme Salomon. Um, so uh, he will need no introduction to, to most people. Um, he is the French Director General for Health, a position he's held since January 2018, as well as an elected member of the World Health Organization Executive Committee. Uh, Professor Solomon seems to have a clinical background, which um, would take most of us 100 years to achieve in, in being full professor of each of public health, epidemiology and infectious disease. So, um, Professor, please, uh, I believe you're going to talk to us about how we've managed and or how you've managed national state of emergency across France. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, dear, dear Ron Daniels, uh, for the invitation and, and the organization of this session and, and moderating so well. Uh, as you said, uh, I am MD, MPH, PhD, and, and a specialist of infectious and tropical disease, and I have been asked to become the general director for health in France. Uh, three years ago, and I didn't know I had to <laughs> struggle against this uh, pandemic. So um, I'm, I'm deeply sorry not to be able to congratulate and and uh, and participate with my colleagues from Italy and, and Germany, Dr. Rocco and, and Professor Willer, but I'm very happy to listen to my uh, colleagues, uh, Garrett and, and Marcus, and it was really very, very interesting for me. Um, as you know, um, I am heavily involved in the COVID response in um, in France uh, as crisis director, as we said, or uh, or scientific director. And uh, you may know, as you may know, we are facing a huge third wave, third surge uh, after two waves in March and, and October. And now, uh, with more than 80% of variant uh, V1 in France, we have. Uh, all the variants you want, uh, V2 in the Indian Indian Ocean, uh, in the French islands of La Réunion and Mayotte, and, and V3 P1 in French Guiana. So, so we can have a lot of uh, uh, lessons and, and, and studies uh, against uh, variants. We have now more than uh, 33,000 cases a day, and uh, we are dealing with uh, 31,000 patients hospitalized now and more than 6,000 severe cases in ICU. So just one point, we, we now have uh, 10,000 ICU beds and we had 5,000 before, just uh, two, years, two years ago. So it's a huge effort in France. And uh, we have, of course, wonderful MDs and, and nurses and, and staff everywhere. And I think it's a very important point, the, the huge human uh, mobilization against uh, this outbreak. Um, the total death toll now in France is uh, more than one uh, and one one hundred and one thousand deaths in our country. Population uh, is uh, sixty six million, and we have, as you may know, curfew and lockdown measures in place. And I, I wanted to say it's very important, maybe for me, uh, um, to say that the the importance of communication, daily communication. Uh, population education and, of course, human compliance to the to the public health measures. And um, one sp 
specific maybe specific uh, point in France is the uh, involvement of our uh, president uh, Emmanuel Macron with leading a coordination session each week, uh, which is quite difficult for us because we have to explain everything, and it's a really huge session with uh, all points of uh, of control of epidemiology treatments and, and vaccine. Uh, we are explained and we are um, challenged and uh, he, he did it uh, since March so as you may know we are now uh, with our uh, 50 session and it's very very interesting and he is very interested and involved in, in, uh, in managing the, the outbreak. So um, I had of course um, a lot of points in common with my colleagues about the, the new data systems from scratch uh, the importance of big data and, and open data, uh, the new test system in the labs. I think uh, it's a huge effort. We are now um, doing more than 3.5 million tests a week. Uh, and of course, a lot of efforts in sequencing. Uh, I think that's really, really very new. So uh, maybe just to, to uh, explain maybe the, the main lessons for us, um, I think the COVID-19 pandemic has been a stark reminder um, that Europe is not immune from devastating emerging infectious diseases. Um, at the same time, it has shown the, the power of information sharing through Europe, for example, but also uh, uh, for many countries, and the convergence of um, energies, efforts, and resources across member states in the European Union. The strategies of the European Union and the World Health Organization help strengthen national health systems for an optimal response to COVID-19 and future health crises. As you may know, France has always been a pioneer and promoter of universal health coverage. The fight against sepsis fits naturally into this overall strategy. France is also a pioneer in the fight to roll back sepsis and its recent efforts in this area are regularly pressed internationally. This includes the implementation of new coding methods for sepsis to improve data um, for epidemiological research or uh, the recommendations to health professionals for the management of sepsis that our Autorité de Santé, um, our experts should make public this year. Uh, as you may know, sepsis is a devastating disease resulting from the immune system's deregulated response to infections that leads to organ failure and potentially death. It's now well demonstrated that COVID-19 is a clinical phenotype of sepsis of viral origin. Each year, sepsis affects nearly 50 million people worldwide, more than 40% uh, of them, of whom are children under the age of five. While the burden is concentrated in poor and emerging countries, sepsis also remains a leading cause of death in high-income countries. Overall, sepsis causes more than 11 million deaths each year. Yet the majority of these diseases of the deaths are preventable, as you know. It's estimated that sepsis is responsible each year for nearly 700,000 deaths in Europe and nearly 57,000 deaths in France. The average cost is around 60,000 60, um, 16, euro per hospitalization. In May 2017, the World Health Assembly adopted Resolution 70.7 on sepsis that urges WHO member states to include the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of sepsis in the organization of the health systems. 
the resolution calls on WHO to develop guidance on sepsis prevention and management and on member states to define and implement standards and establish guidelines, infrastructure, laboratory capacity, strategies and tools for identifying sepsis, reducing its incidence as well as morbidity and mortality due to sepsis. And on United Nations organizations, partner, international organizations and stakeholders to enhance sepsis treatment and infection prevention on control, including vaccinations. The COVID-19 pandemic should prompt national authorities to develop a national strategy to fight sepsis. In addition to a high death rate, COVID-19 exacerbates the social cost of uh, sepsis through its long-term effects. I think it's a very important point, the long-term effects of COVID. The long-term consequences of sepsis are well known. Up to 50% of sepsis survivors suffer from physical, cognitive, and psychological damage. It's increasingly established that patients with COVID-19 are at high risk for similar long-term consequences, such as chronic fatigue, muscle weakness, loss of smell, difficulty concentrating, and loss of autonomy. If several countries are increased their intention to the issue of sepsis, to date only a few countries have taken concrete measures. France has endeavored to improve in particular the surveillance of cases of sepsis in the territory to knowledge of the public on sepsis and the training of health professionals to innovate for the prevention, detection and treatment of sepsis. Concerted and global effort is necessary to decrease the burden of sepsis and improve its prevention, diagnosis, and clinical management. So thank you very much for your attention. I'll be happy to answer to your questions, ponder on a few points for discussion maybe. I, I think the, the main point for us in France are uh, the new tools uh, for uh, early detection. I think it's very important to share uh, the new the diagnostic uh, procedures. Um, I have one point maybe uh, we didn't discuss about the, the role of um, young people, uh, children, young teenagers or young adults helping us uh, using new communication tools, uh, social networks to share information, to explain to uh, different people. Uh, and I think it was really one point, uh, one major point during this, uh, this uh, pandemic. Of course, the innovation and, and, and uh, new treatments that we, that we share very quickly. And maybe um, the importance of international mobilization, because we had a lot of uh, meetings, we had a lot of exchange about, of course, big data, open data, uh, GZ uh, uh, organization. And, and I think it's very important to, um, to organize the debate because we had maybe too many experts and too many, uh, too many papers to read, you know. So I, I think we had maybe to, to, to think for, I think we may have a tech. Thank you so much, um, Professor Solomon. I, I, I'm not sure whether it was only me that uh, missed the last 30 seconds uh, of what you said, but uh, fantastic obs observations and, and insights. Um, there is a great question that's just arisen for you. Um, but I, I think firstly, and I'm conscious I want to leave half an hour for a true panel discussion. So we've only got a few minutes. Uh, thank you for shining a light on the links between COVID-19 and sepsis. This was highlighted by colleagues in Wuhan as, uh, as long ago as April 2020. There's been a recent publication in one of the academic journals by Professor Jean-Louis Vincent to this um, 
point and the Global Sets Alliances has a publication in press around this. These are intrinsically interlinked. And I, I, I'm really welcoming of the fact that you highlighted the recovery journey. This is going to have a huge human burden as well as a fiscal burden. And I think there's huge interest in the data and we can we can discuss this as we move forward to the panel discussion. But the, the specific question for you is, I think it's a great question. It can apply in other areas to other high-income countries, but what should the involvement of France be to support francophone countries in Africa to tackle sepsis? No, a major question. As you know, our president is really uh, wanting and, and, and willing to, to help, um, of course, low-income countries through COVAX initiative or through HACTA initiative, through the uh, multilateral organization, thanks, of course, uh, uh, to WHO, as, as you may know, in less than one month now, we'll have the uh, World Assembly, uh, and I'm, sh I'm sure it would be, a real, of course, a, a major point. And um, I think, you know, the, the main idea now, uh, thanks to our uh, Chinese colleagues, is uh, for the next pandemic uh, to share the information very quickly and to be uh, absolutely convinced that um, we are we are now a little village, you know we have to struggle everywhere because if we left if we let the African continent uh, away and uh, apart, it's a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake. So we have to to share with them all the information we have, all the tools we have, all the treatments we have, and of course the vaccine. The vaccine. So, uh, or we have a, a, we'll have a, a huge boomerang effect, you know, and it, it will be very costly and, and and a shame for all the countries. So, I'm sure now this, this is a major major lesson uh, to to call for help very quickly and to help everyone, of course, because you know, through the, the, the all the the the, the fights, all the flights we have all the, the, the population moving and uh, we, we need, uh, of course, uh, to develop a, a lot of solidarity and, 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 and uh, you know, equity because it, it was the, the one of the lessons in France. Uh, of course, we, we are facing a, a drama and, and, and a huge mortality, but uh, the main mortality is observed in poor parts of France. Uh, in uh, you know, in the suburbs of Paris, in uh, in the migrants, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, organizations, and and it's really a, a shame for all the countries. You know, this uh, uh, importance of uh, struggling against social inequalities, um, of course, uh, geographical inequalities, because of course I I call I I talk about uh, our islands and our. Uh, uh, you know, departments in 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 uh, South uh, America, but uh, really, it's it's very important to 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 be aware of the social and geographical inequalities and to to fight against them. So, of course, we'll help uh, all all the people, all the countries uh, that will call for them. But I'm sure, and you are right, that we have to help more uh, French-speaking countries. Not because not because we are French-speaking. But because it's uh, easier, only, and so the education, the promotion tool, the the, the, the diagnostic tools, and all the, um, the, the, the the help we can we can uh, share with them uh, is easier if it's French speaking. So that's only the point. And of course, we have a lot of uh, in common in terms of uh, uh, you know medical practices and and education and uh, university exchanges, of course. 
Fantastic. And, and I, I note a point from another of our guests who uh, reminds us that there are many French speaking um, principalities and countries elsewhere in the world, including um, in the Caribbean. Uh, it, it is everywhere. And they make the point, actually, that in uh, St. Vincent de the Grenadines, St. Vincent de Grenadines, uh, that there have been very few linkages with sepsis, which is interesting. And I think we would need to collectively look at those data to see um, to investigate how robust they are, because we, we've certainly in the UK and speaking to other colleagues um, in the Western world, particularly, we have seen many, many cases around 30, 40 percent of people in intensive care with multi-organ dysfunction as a consequence. Um, so we're going to move on from, from that, the, you know, the points around Africa CDC and uh, and so forth, you know, very, very well made points. But I think we, we need to. Uh, probably open the discussion now. Uh, and thank you, uh, Professor Solomon, for, for those really interesting points. I, I have a, another, you know, gold star question that, that really struck me. It was posted some time ago. Um, I think I'd like to put this first to, to Marcus. Um, it is a really important point and one which I think the governments around the world need to be honest about and need to embrace. So, um, the question reads, what are we going to do about healthcare needs that fell to the wayside during this pandemic? We're seeing advanced staging for newly presenting cancer, mental health exacerbation, primary care needs um, uh, falling by the wayside, the management of chronic conditions. So I suppose this is really around the unintended consequence, perhaps the you know disproportionate effect among lower income society members of lockdowns, of restrictions, and how we can mitigate against these in the future and how we can help our healthcare systems to recover for all conditions. So, uh, Dr. Friedrich, could, could you take that very challenging point first, please? Yeah, I think we, um, we have seen that as well in our data here from the state that a lot of preventive visits were postponed during COVID um, for uh, that a lot of healthcare practices actually shut their door. Uh, a lot of surgeries, elective surgeries, which is, you know, colonoscopies and others were postponed. And that we will probably grapple with the effects for a long time in looking at uh, cancer incidence rates and also uh, other rates that um, we already see is like slightly ticking up. It is a big issue. Um, uh, but again, I, I, I want to point to at that point uh, when uh, COVID-19 overwhelmed um, the state here, that there, there, there was no other good solution in place um, to, to take a look at it. But it, it really brings up the question, Ron, that you were asking, what, what to do next? I mean, we know now what happened in the past. We know that this was not good for the health of um, probably a lot of underserved, but also some subpopulations who needed these, these um, uh, procedures, but also the visits. Um, and I, I, I think that uh, one thing that I'm very proud of that the pandemic has pointed us more or quicker to is this uh, effect of telemedicine and using um, other modalities than just going to the office and being checked uh, up. Uh, I think that it will be, uh, it will be not always a substitute, but I think that um, we have seen now, especially in my clinic and um, when talking to primary care providers, that probably 
80 to 85 percent of the patients can safely be engaged in something like telemedicine. And telemedicine for me is, does not only mean like a, a, a glorified Zoom meeting, but it also means everything, um, the, 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 you know, sensors and something like that. And I think that this will be, again, one of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, that this will be supercharged going forward, um, building systems that can take in um, these data from, from these sensors and also feeding that then to the caring primary care physicians. And I hope that this will spurn again an innovation in, in, in care delivery. Um, uh, what we are doing here just actively, um, uh, our Commissioner of Health, Dr. Zucker, made a public service announcement to, pro to promote um, actually preventive medicine and also uh, to, to bring this point really up and center to say, go to your doctor. If, if you postponed a mammography or you postponed a colonoscopy, that um, we, we encourage you to go and, and see that. And I know that um, some of the providers who are active in the preventive health space, that they open up their practices for longer hours to make sure that uh, this, this uh, uh, caseload uh, like will be reduced and that the, everybody can be seen and getting their preventive care. I know mammography screening uh, appointments uh, uh, are, are really increased right now, which is a good sign, but that probably means that a lot of uh, women have uh, missed that during the COVID uh, pandemic, and I don't know yet what the effect will be on, on, on the health of these people. So I think it is a multi-pronged approach to look at new, um, like new techniques out there uh, in a, in a way of innovative, you know, healthcare delivery, but also again promoting this, uh, uh, and maybe this brings again a preventive health uh, in the forefront again. How important it actually is, because it was in a way like an afterthought. You know, okay, preventive health is primary care. Let's not talk too much about it. But I think it brings again this really on onto everybody's agenda that this is immensely important and hopefully that will be also result in a rethinking of our approach as a public health agency to promote uh, preventive health um, we we talked earlier a little bit about reimbursement you know i as a primary care physician at heart i i i i, I still you know, have problems understanding why why there is such a discrepancy of, uh, you know, if there's an orthopedic surgeon seeing a person for a, you know, visit for a muscle sprain versus, you know, I, I deal with HIV and diabetes and everything else at the same time and get like a fraction of uh, that, that reimbursed. So I think it, it you know, multi, a multifaceted approach probably would make sense. But I'm interested to hear what my colleagues on the panel have to say about that. Yes, thank you so much, Marcus. I, I'm really interested to hear uh, Jerome's reflections on this from the perspective of France on the, you know, perhaps unintended consequence that may have been seen um, with a focus on a single condition. And, and I'd, I know Gareth has a point to make after Jerome, but I, I think also I'm, I'd be interested to ask um, uh, the uh, Director General for Health in, in France, should there now be a diversion of some of the funds appropriated to managing COVID-19 toward reinvigorating public health campaigns for other conditions, urging people to access healthcare in a timely fashion. 
Thank you. Yes, we did it uh, uh, since the beginning of the, of the outbreak because the management of chronic conditions and not COVID patients were was really a, a huge problem for us. Um, as you may know, everything in, in France is free. So there is no no uh, money problem for the patients, and and of course uh, they are they are uh, it, it's very important to say they they, they can pay and then can be uh, of course cured and 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 followed by the by the center. The organization is is uh, specific in France about cancer because we have dedicated cancer centers, so they they, they go on uh, following uh, the, their patients and. Uh, and doing the the exam the exams for example of on or coloscopies and 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 uh, CT scans for example, um, we had unattended conditions and maybe surprises. I'm not I'm not sure you had them. Uh, for example, we observed a, um, a reduction in cardiac neuro neurological strokes uh, through the, the the all the lockdowns and it's really an uh, unattended uh, unexpected. Um, it's the same thing for mental health. It's changing during the the uh, countermeasures, uh, and it's quite surprising to see that there are we we observe less suicides during lockdowns, uh, and um, that was not uh, expected to, uh, by our psychiatrist. Um, we go on dealing with emergencies, of course, and even with uh, transplantation, or uh, of course. Uh, we have a many, many, many uh, a huge um, decrease in uh, accidents, road accidents, of course, but even uh, work accidents, and it's the same thing. We develop uh, really very strongly the telemedicine. I think it's it's really a, a huge progress now. Uh, everyone is doing this. It's it's free. It's uh, it's uh, uh, covered by the by the uh, universal. Um, Coverage in France, your universal health coverage. So we 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 had a, a huge campaign, a communication campaign in April to say, don't postpone all your medical examinations and 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 uh, uh, exams and of course uh, meetings. You have to go there. And we ask the hospitals and um, and dedicated units to call the patients to say, come to to have your examination, your 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 follow up and everything especially the, the ID patients. Uh, what is quite new is the mo mobilization of different uh, health professionals. Uh, we ask um, new professionals, uh, nurses, of course, but also students, retired MDs and nurses to help, uh, to go uh, to, to uh, you know, in front of, of the patients, what we call which means go out of uh, go out of the hospital and please go to the patients. Uh, we have a, we we developed a lot of nurse visits, for example, home visits, and it was very important. And we ask at the, at the and it's for my last point. We ask patient associations uh, to mobilize their 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 patients to say it's important to be uh, followed and it's important to have your your uh, examinations, your medical. Uh, uh, Follow up, and, and I think it was very important. So many, many points, but uh, of course, it was a huge preoccupation for us, and we tried to uh, not uh, stop the, the follow up of all these uh, chronic uh, patients. Fantastic! Th thank you so much. That's a that's a really honest answer. I'm I'm hugely impressed. I, I haven't personally seen as a consumer 
evidence of such public health messaging around other conditions in the UK. So I'm really pleased that that happened in France. Uh, my personal perspective is that that is hugely important. Um, I would reinforce to your earlier point that France was one of the first countries to develop a sepsis national action plan, not before the UK. Um, so obviously leading leading on this, which which is great. Um, a guest has made a point about the economic burden from lost productivity from COVID-19 and sepsis. I don't think we know yet around the lost productivity from COVID-19, but just from the UK perspective, we asked an independent health economics consortium to estimate the lost productivity per annum from sepsis in the UK, and it was £12.8 billion per annum. So lost productivity from COVID is going to eclipse that. This is a huge fiscal problem. Uh, Gareth, you, you had a point about delayed surgeries, I think, as unintended consequence. Yeah, Ron, I mean, I think we just have to maybe just, just step back a little bit. And if we just look at the actual WHO's constitution, you know, what is health? Health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And I think sometimes we lose that perspective. And um, Jerome and, and Marcus uh, have talked about, you know, different payer options. And, and we have in the UK what many perceive as free healthcare. Um, it is not a free healthcare system. Somebody has to pay for it. The government has decided that this is the option that they will take and they will fund it based on the economic benefit and the value created. Um, so we have to look at this from an opportunity perspective in the future. Well, let's look at preventative measures. And what I mean from that perspective is if by 2030 we need 80 million staff worldwide and we know we will be short of 18 million by that time, what sort of opportunities are there in this preventative model? And what I mean is if you see the growth of the wellness sector, which is, you know, rising very substantially. Actually, I met Jerome's colleague, the French ambassador, invited me to a session in Brussels where we discussed the growth of the wellness sector in France and across Europe. Uh, 50,000 new jobs being stimulated, for example, in a year. And these are huge opportunities and then also an opportunity for the medical sector to bridge into that sector to look at how do we manage quality and safety? Because, you know, from a cancer perspective, you know, there's a lot of treatments out there that are not um, being looked at from a, from a quality and safety perspective. So I think we have to look at how do we uh, move investments into preventative measures? How do we create and stimulate new and meaningful jobs? And, and what I mean by that is, Ron, you know, you know yourself, to become a nurse or a doctor, it can take up to 12 years. OK, and um, some of these preventative measures, as in putting in a mental health, uh, shall we say, solution into children's health and well-being in a school, we could do that within months. OK, and uh, uh, support children around self-harm. It would pay for itself very quickly because the economic cost of uh, suicide is about one point five million over the course of tax um, shall we say, income. So. Let's start to look at this from a from a point of view of value creation, and I'm sure Jerome and Marcus uh, could make these arguments very easily. Um, but it's about now starting putting these cards on the table because after COVID, I mean, we have to. I look at some of the stats in the UK. Primary care is now looking at ten percent of the G of uh, UK population. I think per week now that it's been ramped up because everyone is flooding the system. That's not sustainable. 
you know. So how do we um, engage? And what I mean by engage, let's look at the sports agencies, huge resources in rugby, in uh, football, soccer agencies. Why can we not engage uh, social prescribing? Um, you know, National Academy of Social Prescribing in the UK is doing great work. The arts, they've hit, um, you know, all these areas are sectors that need investment. Why don't we look at how do we invest in these areas? And why don't we look at something from a long-term perspective when we're raising bonds and finance, not on the short-term look? So these are opportunities I see, Ron. Yeah, no, I, that's fantastic. This kind of recalibration of our expectations around healthcare system funding, around how we prioritize the appropriateness of resource allocation to preventative medicine and non-preventative medicine. It, it's it's a hugely refreshing attitude. It, it's almost just taking it back and redesigning the system. Um, there's a, a long way to go. And I think, you know, there have been multiple questions arising, Gareth, and relevant to, to others at governmental level, you know, uh, should this money follow into WHO programs? national departments of public health, NGOs, do we need a circular economy and so forth? So, you know, what 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 do you think, Gareth, and others think would, would be the mechanism for this recalibration of prioritization of preventative and non-preventative healthcare? It, it has to complement the system, the existing system. And we can create a circular economy. As I said, there there already are systems within place. We have to use it, look at new mechanisms, new platforms, new ways of of dealing with this look we've a lot of clever people in the world okay we can learn from the googles the facebooks but let's do it ethically and transparently let's look at this supply chain let's look at the health system which is a 12 trillion dollar market space and um, we have prototyped certain solutions in the uk that can give a pound invested 36 back jerome and marcus can do the opportunity cost on that it's substantial and um, this is how we can drive new ways and new new opportunities and um, i will say that the g20 in in global solutions in berlin meets next month we will meet with felix uh and um, who is the president of the democratic republic of congo and the chair of the african union and africa has a and south america and asia and um, they have a you know they will come to the table as well because the need is so great and they could actually revolutionize healthcare because they could look at this preventative as a huge opportunity for them thank you so much um anything to add from the perspective of new york or france or general observations marcus Jerome? no i think um you know these are it's a great discussion because I think that something like a COVID-19 pandemic um, has to also spur some of these discussions and basic understanding and fundamentals of health systems around the world. What, um, you know, how you started in the beginning, Ron, asking what went well, what are the lessons and so forth. And I think that um, this will again, bring us to this level of thinking about preventive preventative health um, in, in a new way. Um, you know, uh, system change in the United States and in New York is um, extremely, extremely hard. But I think that maybe um, the time is now to at least start a discussion, engage some of the stakeholders in this and really uh, put it out on the table and say that how how can we think about preventive health and design 
healthcare around the patient, you know, something that I think the Global Sepsis Alliance and others are always always advocated to have kind of the patient in the center, then, um, you know, institutions or other stakeholders in the center and build the system around that. And so I think those are some of the ideas um, uh, we, we have, uh, especially with the question about health equity, we have started asking those questions internally and uh, have engaged in a discussion about kind of like what, what, what should we do in the next couple of years. And I think uh, it, it again comes to the point that a strong primary care base, which you have in Great Britain and also in France and are really, you know, much better situated than, um, you know, the rest of the world, uh, that that is really a fundamental need for um, answering these questions and also making the next move then and engaging patients stronger in, in this preventive health space. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, anything from yourself, Professor Salomon, on that point? Yes. Yes, thank you. Just one point. Uh, the global cost of uh, this crisis in France is estimated around 400 billions euros. So wow. I, 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 am, I am sure this is not the last crisis, but this is the first major crisis of a new era. There will be more crises, emerging infectious disease, pandemic, uh, and of course, uh, environmental crisis, climate changes, uh, impact and everything. So prevention is really a major point uh, through anticipation, preparation, innovation, of course. But my point is, uh, we have to invest in humans. Uh, we lack a lot of human resources, MD, nurses, ICU specialists. We, uh, we have to, to, to find a field epidemiologist, people to be able to do contact tracing, nurse visits, visits and, and help people to, to correctly be isolated and everything. So I think the, the cognitive response is crucial. Uh, we, we need more uh, social studies by, uh, to, to, to evaluate the, the psychological conditions, why people don't want vaccination. I think it's, it's a huge problem. It's very, very, you know, um, uh, important for us. Of course, everything is important, big data, open data, artificial intelligence, but in, invest in humans, I think it's really important for all the countries. Fantastic, thank you. That is a beautiful segue into the the final collection of questions from the the guests here present. There was a a, a lovely observation that um, there was a, a pop song created in Vietnam around viral prevention and stopping the spread, which which did an enormous amount. But it it also links to some other points made around the point you made, uh, Professor Solomon, around vaccine hesitancy, around a point that another guest made, that in Ecuador, the public simply don't listen, they don't behave, there's lots of mass gatherings. My question to the panel is, in the age of information consumerism, in the age of super rapid dissemination of information, in the age where a high school student has the confidence to access a scientific paper and appraise it for themselves. Have we misjudged the level of trust we need to place in our public and the granularity of information they merit in order to get them to behave in the right way without diktat? Um, I'm ha happy to, to just chip in here, Ron, just to say that, you know, 
trust is the oil of the future. Um, I think we really need to look at this. Um, and I think going forward, we have from, from a public policy perspective, let's also just look at what we have established. In 2015, 193 heads of state stood up and uh, agreed to the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And we already have a compass and we always already have, shall we say, a, a, a direction. And um, as Jerome and Marcus are well aware and, and mentioned, you know, uh, climate change is coming around the corner. And um, let's be dead honest here. This this poses a huge health risk uh, around the world. And then um, I think it's very important that we begin to stitch this together. Biden administration tom tomorrow will have a summit. But how many health ministries have been invited? Um, because I think the impact from a health perspective is enormous. And then um, we need to start to think holistically around how do we bring everyone to the table and also uh, trusting uh, next generation and how do we how do we how do we inform people and then health literacy programs in schools but also we have to look at uh, mitigate long-term health problems through family planning and uh, engagement pregnancy well-being women's empowerment gender equality all these things are on the table um, but let's use our wisdom here like because we have quite a lot of knowledge and um, this panel you know is engaging in multiple fronts from sepsis to COVID-19 to lessons learned and um, there's so much information out there but let's start making action you know let's start doing things you know because we don't have time that's the unfortunate thing you know 2030 agenda you know when I when I see uh, statements come out about net zero by 2035 or 2050 look Bosch, uh, the German corporation, are already net zero, okay? Let's follow best practice and let's start engaging and amplifying those messages and leadership, so. Thank you, Gareth. Uh, Jerome, Marcus, any, any comments on, on my challenge, I suppose, around has the messaging been yes. right? You know, do we need to engage our next generation? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we need. Uh, thank, thank you. We we are trying to fight against uh, vaccine hesitancy through uh, using, you know, social influencers, and uh, we need to 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 give examples for people, you know, through brothers or sisters. And in France, I think it's already the same thing in in US or in the United Kingdom or in Germany. There was too many informations, you know. Everyone, every each 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 MD, each nurse was the specialist on the 24/7 information channels, and of course, I think there are many levels to use. You know, of course, the WHO mobilization, the European solidarity, the national message is very important to to, to see there is a strategy, but we need local communication. You know, you are really listening to your pharmacist, to your MD, to the, to the mayor. Uh, to local influencers, it's very important, you know, using cultural approach, uh, using, of course, different languages and, for example, pictures for children and a lot of schools try to explain the pandemic through pictures, uh, through drawings. Uh, and I think we have to use all these this tools to, to, you know, share information. Thank you so much. No, that that's a great answer. Uh, Mar Marcus, any, any perspective from you uh, from a New York state? Yeah, I, I think you're right, Ron. Um, I, I would not say if we completely misjudge, but we are far behind behind the curve in our response. And I think um, sh in, in how we share information, how we use data, that 
um, the, the, like the current generations is probably more advanced and we are still in this mindset of how, how do we serve the elderly generation? And I think we have to really adapt a new strategy, bringing information into the hands maybe of the individual and how, how, how that is. I think social media is here to stay. We've seen that. Um, I, I get most of my information not from the TV anymore or the internet. You know, I, I, I use Twitter and, uh, and uh, you know, all the research papers, all the, all the thoughts that are being shared there is, is just remarkable as a global community. And I think that um, we, we have some catching up to do as, as, a, as a health agency to really engage on a new level with our constituents, with our patients and with the people on the ground. And I think that um, th this needs probably uh, like a new, new like thinking about how to use data and how to use um, uh, information. You also mentioned trust. I think that the public usually um, is still trusting of, um, you know, the institution in itself, but we could probably do a better job in, in pushing out the information and making people aware of that. Yeah, well, I, I would like to thank, you know, both of our colleagues who are engaged in national and regional government levels for their candor in their response to that question. It was, of course, a challenge. We have one minute left. I'm going to pre-warn the three panelists that I'm going to come around the room in no particular order and ask for one sentence of a closing remark or a take-home point. So uh, in no particular order, Gareth, please, a closing remark. Um, thanks, Ron. I think this has been just an invigorating session. And um, from my perspective, I'm just delighted to meet Marcus and Jerome. Um, I very much look to the future. And I think this is an opportunity. I mean, the Sepsis Congress, you know, listen to earlier sessions. Um, I'm really, I feel really proud to be part of the medical community because we are operating with openness and transparency. And we are trying to build that trust within our communities. And let's go out and let's meet it head on. Perhaps in the past, what we've done is we've sat back and waited for the cases to come to us. Perhaps one of the lessons from this is that we go out and meet this head on and that we go out and fight the disease, shall we say, in our communities and help them manage this pandemic. Um, so I'm just full of optimism. Thank you very much, Ron, for hosting it. And it's been a pleasure uh, joining the panel. Thanks so much, Gareth. Rather more than one sentence, but um, it comes with the nationality, I believe. So, <laughs> um, Jerome, any, anything from you? Uh, closing remark? Uh, well, it's very short. You know, I, I think... Uh, the last pandemic was uh, in 19, in 1917. So we, we, with this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we, we knew approximately nothing. And uh, we have to share the lessons globally and we have a lot to learn for the future. So the main question for me is how to transmit all we, all we have learned you know, to the next generation to be sure that in many decades, they will not never forget what we what we did and what we we did not very well. I think it's very important, you know, to share very honestly all the lessons. That that's a hugely important um, comment. Thank you, M Marcus. The the final comment from yourself, please. And and could we keep it brief? Yeah. Any any big disrupting event 
such like COVID or any pandemic will give us as a society great opportunities. And I just hope that we will take those lessons and uh, apply them for the future to make it a better society. As we say in the UK, hear, hear. So I'd like to thank our three panelists, Gareth Presh, uh, Professor Jerome Solomon, and, uh, and of course, Dr. Marcus Friedrich. Great conversation. I think there'll be lots more of this on social media and, uh, and following. Thank you very much. Thanks thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who contributed to making World Sepsis Congress 2021 possible. Session 2 is already in this feed, and we will continue with Session 4 and 5 on May 11, 2021. Until then, stay safe and thanks for joining.